Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark and Lucy Dallas, the TLS's arts editor, is here with me. Hello, Lucy. Hi, Alex. How are you? I'm fine. I know I always say I've been on my travels, but I've been on my travels. I've been Mm -hmm. to Belfast from where I live in the Republic of Ireland for the Belfast International Arts Festival, where I interviewed Charlotte Mendelssohn and Claire Powell in a wonderful bookshop called No Alibis, which is a crime bookshop predominantly, although not only. And I have to say, this is a slightly extra literary observation here, but it had a wonderful Mm -hmm. thing, a ceiling mural. That is unusual and wonderful. What was it of? It was of Columbo, played by Peter Falk. Well, of course. What was he doing? Having a cup of tea, having a lie down, waving at you, reading a book? He was wearing his Mac and sort of looking, you know, he had that kind of just one more thing sort of look on his face. And when I said to the owner of this wonderful bookshop, David, I like him and took a picture of him. He said, that's our store detective. (laughs) That's very nice. That is very nice. (laughs) So I had a very good and jolly time doing that. And of course, Charlotte Mendelssohn is very close to our hearts, isn't she? Because she wrote a wonderful book about gardening. Rhapsody in Green, is it called? It is. It is. It's a very good book. One of the things I remember from it, she's always going around trying to compost things and eating bits of things. She sort of walks down the street and tries to eat bits of plants just to see what they taste like. And she, she tries to compost everything that goes through the house. It's a great book. We didn't talk about gardening. We didn't talk about gardening, actually. We talked about dysfunctional families and toxic men. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, (laughs) largely. So gardening would have been more soothing, but it was very good fun and absolutely fascinating. So I've been doing that. What have you been up to? Well, you're the one who gads about. Though I have to say the one place that I do know in Belfast very well from my misspent youth is Lavery's Gin Palace. Did you get there? I didn't. I did get to the crown. Oh, yes, that's nice. The crown is nice. Tell us more of your misspent youth in... No, certainly not. I'm just going to... Just going to say that Lavery's Gym Palace is a great place. Listeners, if you feel that my co-host Lucy is on occasion a little <laughs> withholding, do write in. But actually just write in anyway. We want to hear from you. Write in anyway and talk to us. I've got a question for you, Alex, this week. Mm. Are you a Dracula or a Smaug? Well, I don't... I mean, you... <laughs> I don't know really what... What's riding on that? What's riding on I mean, you know, what is it going to say about me if I answer... Well, the first thing, actually, a good thing, what it would say is that you've got a fair bit of money. It's from a brilliant piece. It's in the In Briefs, which I think are a very unsung part of the paper, actually. There's eight or nine short. They absolutely are, says someone who's written quite a lot of In Briefs in their time. I used to edit the In Brief pages. They're a wonderful thing. Uh, It's like eight or nine short pieces about all sorts of things. So the subject matter this week is flops, chivalry, Leonard Cohen, reactionaries, rediscoveries, that sort of thing. The one that caught my eye was about rare books. It's um, a book about someone who works in a shop called Sutherland's, which I'm not familiar with. A very old, very venerable shop. In Mayfair, isn't it, I think? Uh, It says off Piccadilly. So, yes, I actually don't know. He says that he's he's identified the guy who wrote the book, Oliver Darkshire. Two sets of people, Draculas, who are devoted to a single subject, such as botany or calligraphy, and Smaugs, who fill their lairs with precious items of every imaginable kind. But that's if you've got enough money to be a book collector, which actually links up with what we're going to talk about later. It does. We're talking about manuscripts, aren't we? Yeah, we will be. Yeah, we will. And if you do want to read all the Splendid in Briefs, then have a look at the TLS. And if you're not already a subscriber, just, you know, get in there and subscribe. 
that's my mercenary call to arms, call to action. What's it called? Whatever it is. That's my hard headed commercial instinct coming out there. Well, after that hard sell, how can you fail to want to listen to the rest of the podcast? Coming up on this week's show, at a time that saw Sean Penn give the president of Ukraine his Oscar, we examine the phenomenon that is Vladimir Zelensky. And like Indiana Jones, we delve into the world of the manuscript. But first, in the days and weeks that preceded Russia's extensive invasion of Ukraine, an offensive foreshadowed by their occupation of Crimea and eastern Donbass in 2014, the world became increasingly familiar with the country's president. Was it possible that this war leader, now sending video messages from a Kiev under bombardment and galvanizing his compatriots and the world alike, had once been a sketch comedian and the winner of the Ukrainian edition of Strictly Come Dancing? Well, the last year has meant that Vladimir Zelensky has dominated the news, and now a quartet of books delving more deeply into his life has appeared. Anna Reid, author of Borderland, A Journey Through the History of Ukraine, has reviewed them all, no mean feat. She was due to join us, but at the last minute she had terrible tech issues, so instead I'm going to read you an extract from the piece. Lucy, it's a fascinating piece, isn't it? It's really fascinating. It talks about how he came to power, some of that background and what his life was like before that. I hadn't realised how closely the TV show he was in. So the TV show he was in where he plays the president is called Servant of the People, I think. Is that right? Yes, that's right. That's right. He plays a history teacher who is kind of swept to power after a sort of strange experiment by the entrenched leaders of Ukraine and becomes, you know, a servant of the people campaigning mm. on this sort of anti-corruption ticket. But then Vladimir Zelensky himself set up a political party called Servant of the People and was swept into office more or less on an anti-corruption ticket. It's an absolutely extraordinary story. If we just be wide-eyed and thinking, gosh, how thrilling, how amusing, if it hadn't got so completely deadly serious. And as Anna Reid says, especially in the first weeks of the war, he was incredibly courageous and charismatic. And she says it's crucial that he stayed in Kiev right at the beginning when nobody knew what was going on. He stayed there and said, no, no, we're fighting helpers, everybody. And rallied Western support. And, you know, it was interesting to read about that journey into power, not only the sort of, as it were, showbiz angle, because as she points out, he announced his candidacy on a New Year's Eve TV special. He said, sorry, I'm going to interrupt to say I'm going to become a candidate for the presidency. And then four months later, There he was in a landslide victory. But it was also that the things that were interesting were also the parts that obviously, you know, people who are much more familiar with the politics of the region will know this, but they're not things that I knew at all. That one of the things that makes him, in a sense, an outsider was he wasn't born in Kiev and raised in Kiev or any of the other big cities that have become increasingly familiar to us over the last Mm. year. He was born in a a steel town called Krivkiri which I'm probably not pronouncing correctly. And he formed this sketch group, which then went to Moscow for several years and took part in a kind of talent contest that, as Anna Reid says, seemed to be masterminded by somebody a little bit like Simon Cowell, the Muscovite Simon Cowell. Yes, known cryptically as His Majesty. Not at all, you would have thought, a preparation to be a hard-headed, sort of world-galvanising military commander, is it? 
no, and and indeed, you know, as all leaders do, as all political leaders do, you know, had quite a lot of you know issues in his presidency. You know, his popularity was slightly on the wane before the full-scale invasion, and it's fascinating. And he had been seen as somebody quite close to Russia, partly because he'd lived there, I guess, but he'd also, Anna Reid points out, you know, performed at the Prime Minister's birthday party. It's a fascinating story and also very interesting on what the challenges that will face him after the yes. conflict, which obviously is something we, you know, it's very hard to see the, the end of it, but obviously there will at some point be an end. And then, you know, what will Ukraine look like? Obviously it'll have enormous challenges but anyway Anna Reid just did a marvellous job talking about these books obviously books that have come out very quickly you know the books that have been written very quickly to satisfy the appetites of people like me who simply don't know enough they're a very different sort of flavour weren't they that I think you know one of them was sort of a bit of a hatchet job one of them was quite the opposite. Yes, one was written by his former press secretary. So very interesting. And I'm, I'm just going to read a bit now. And we will, in the future, have Anna read on in person. But for now, here is an extract from her review. Zelensky was born in 1978, making him a member of what the political scientists Olga Onuch and Henry E. Hale call in the Zelensky effect the independence generation. People old enough to remember the Soviet Union, but young enough to have adapted to life after it and to have been citizens of Ukraine all their adult lives. His hometown was not handsome Kiev, languorous Odessa or postcard pretty Lviv, but Kriviri, a smoggy, Russian-speaking, steel-making city in the southeast. His life started taking shape at the city's university, where his father taught cybernetics and where he was supposed to be studying law, but spent most of his time working on skits and songs with a group of friends. The group's rise, described in detail by Stephen Derricks in Zelensky, Ukraine's President and His Country, took place during what in retrospect feels like the post-Soviet space's golden window, after hyperinflation, but before Putin started beating the Russian nationalist drum. Called Gvartal 95, after the city centre district where Zelensky's family lived, it got its break in 1998, when it was picked for the finals of a Moscow-based talent contest, the Club of the Cheery and Inventive, or KVN. For the next four years, the group competed in the contest between tours to the Russian and Ukrainian deep provinces. But by 2003, its relationship with KVN, like that between Kiev and Moscow, was becoming strained. Most of the money it made was going to KVN's owner, a Simon Cowell-esque figure known as Your Majesty. And the group had never felt at home in Moscow. Knock on a door, Zelensky told an interview later on, and they don't open, not even your neighbours. The crunch came when His Majesty, alert to the changing mood in the Kremlin, started deleting Vatal's 95's edgier jokes and in 2003, the troop returned to Kiev. Financially, the move back to Ukraine was risky because it distanced Kvartal from the large Russian entertainment market. It also thrust Zelensky into the crocodile pit of Ukraine's business and political worlds, since all the major television stations were owned by oligarchs. Together with the co-owners of his production company, his old friends and flatmates Serhii and Boris Shefir, he signed with one of the largest channels, Inter, for 
for a new show to be called Kvartal by Night. 10% political satire, 90% jokes about everyday life, it took off, and with Inter paying $40,000 per episode, Zelensky finally started making money. In 2006, he won the local version of Strictly, Toreador jacket for Ravel's Bolero, Fuchsia Elvis suit for Blue Suede shoes, and took his young family on holiday abroad for the first time. In 2008, his production company had another success with The In-Laws, a beady social comedy in which two elderly couples, one rural, one urban, compete for the attention of their only grandchild. And in the same year, Inter's owner bought 50% of Kvartal's shares for a reported $12 million. By the time Zelensky needed to declare his assets to run for the presidency, they included flats in Kiev, Yalta and London. They also included, as the Ukrainian journalist and television presenter Serhii Rugdenko points out in Zelensky, a biography, an undeclared Tuscan seaside villa bought for 3.8 million euros. When he decided to go into politics is unclear. On the face of it, it was an absurd idea. How could a man whose best-known sketch involved him pretending to play the piano with his penis possibly be president? And with Putin endlessly telling the world that Ukraine was a joke country, why elect a clown? More critically, for a long time, he had appeared to be politically agnostic, if not pro-Russian. During the Orange Revolution in 2004, which reversed a Kremlin-rigged election, he did not take a public stand. In 2011, he performed at the Kremlin-backed, grotesquely corrupt President Viktor Yanukovych's 61st birthday party. And through the passionate mass protest winter of 2013-14, he made jokes about police brutality, but again did not clearly speak out. This was in contrast to other celebrities who regularly appeared, on the protest camp's main stage. In April 2014, remarkably, Kvartal toured Donbass while Russian-backed thugs were taking over the region's police stations and town halls and even performed in the town of Kholivka on the same day as a member of the local council was abducted and killed. From the summer of that year, however, Zelensky started performing for soldiers at the front and the experience politicised him. I have always regarded myself as a Ukrainian national, Derek quotes him telling a journalist, but never have I felt like a Ukrainian deep inside. I always wanted to be a citizen of the world, able to live and work anywhere. Now the citizens of Ukraine have become truly Ukrainians. His new seriousness came through the following years with the first series of Servant of the People, Despite being conceived while fierce battles were going on in Donbass, it hardly mentions Russia. Instead, its message is that Ukraine itself needs moral regeneration, not just at the top, but in the behaviour and values of every individual, rich or poor. As Onuch and Hale detail, its funniest and most painful episodes are the ones that show graft permeating the whole of society. In one, the teacher-turned-president, Vasil Holoborodko, tries to work out why, despite vast government spending, the roads are still riddled with potholes. A cascade of phone calls from the smooth Minister of Infrastructure down to a female road worker in a headscarf and fluorescent jerkin shows each person in the chain adding 10% to the costs. Even the woman in the headscarf is selling buckets of gravel on the side. 
Another running gag is how the president's relatives grab freebies on the back of their new status. His father fills the family flat with nouveau riche tat. Caryatids? What are caryatids? Gold-plated? Bring them in. And his sister trips out of a designer store, garlanded with shopping bags. Sales everywhere, 100% off. Both are genuinely flabbergasted when Holoborodko forces them to return the loot and the resulting rift takes the whole series to heal. With its snappy lines, on-the-nose message and warm heart, the show was an immediate hit and journalists started asking Zelensky if he would like to be president for real. The first sign that he might came at the end of 2017 when he took over a shell political party and renamed it Servant of the People. With elections due in the spring of 2019, for the next 12 months he kept the public guessing, dropping hints to the media and pushing his broad theme, unity around democratic values rather than ethnicity, via the final series of the television show Servant of the People. On December the 31st, 2018, he finally announced his candidacy live in the middle of Kvartal's annual New Year's Eve special. Speaking Ukrainian instead of his usual Russian, he apologised for the break and told viewers that they each had a choice of paths to carry on living as badly as we do now, to go abroad or to stay and try to change the country. He had chosen the third course and was running for president. Four months later, he won in a countrywide landslide with the incumbent's efforts to paint him as a pro-Russian, drug-using puppet of Ihor Kolomoisky, the oligarch behind the channel that aired Servant of the People, overwhelmed by the voters' desire for change. Zelensky was least popular, Honor can hail reminders, among the Ukrainian language cultural establishment and a subset of Western Ukrainians now eating their words. In July 2019, parliamentary elections sealed his victory when servant of the people candidates, most of them in their 30s and political novices, took a clear majority of seats. The defining moment of Zelensky's presidency, of course, is now, and he is playing the war leader role superbly. Critically, in the war's first nerve-wracking weeks, he stayed in Kiev, even when it seemed as though the city was about to fall. Had he left as the diplomatic corps expected him to, the map might look very different. He was also instrumental in rallying Western support, initially in a series of video addresses to parliaments. The House of Commons got a paraphrase of We Shall Fight on the Beaches, while Congress heard his version of I Have a Dream of Weapon Systems. His Jewish heritage has been the best possible rebuke to Putin's nonsensical call for Ukraine's denazification. Largely thanks to his courage and charisma, the West's aid to Ukraine has so far been generous and its sanctions against Russia have been tough, despite Putin's nuclear threats and closure of the gas taps. Domestically, the president's support is sky high, as is that for the war itself. Almost nine in ten Ukrainians say they want to liberate all Ukrainian territory, including Crimea, and almost as many say they actually expect to do so. At the time of writing with the Russian army on the retreat, this looks less like fantasy than it did. The big question regarding Zelensky is what kind of leader he will make after the war ends, or, as Ukrainians say, when victory is won. That was an extract from Anna Reid's review of The Zelensky Effect by Olga Onuch and Henry E. Hale, 
Zelensky, Ukraine's President and His Country, by Stephen Derricks with Marina Shelnikova, translated by Brent Annable. The Fight of Our Lives, My Time with Zelensky, Ukraine's Battle for Democracy, and What It Means for the World, by Yulia Mendel, translated by Madeleine G. Levine. And Zelensky, a biography by Serhii Rudenko, translated by Michael M. Nadan and Alla Perminova. Our thanks go to Anna Reid. to come on the show, an unflinching look at the obsessive world of manuscript collectors. And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. Welcome back. I'm Lucy Dallas. If I say we're going to talk about manuscripts, do you think ancient dust-ridden libraries, silent but for the scratching of a quill? Or do you think dashing, whip-cracking archaeologist Indiana Jones? Well, you're going to get both of these and more. James Waddell, who is our indie in this situation, guides us through the intense, obsessive and fascinating world of manuscript lovers. James, many thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Cheers. James, do you like being compared to an Indiana Jones? <laughs> How do you feel it about it? Gives me a kind of like swashbuckling quality, which is quite absent from my day-to-day life in the library, with a kind of like pallid laptop glow on my face. So yeah, I'm quite, I'm quite <laughs> You've got a library there. tan. I see. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yes. That's how Indy spent most of his days. It's just sometimes he had to go out and chase people and and find things. I was about to say, actually, my intro was maybe a little bit overheated. You are reviewing a book, aren't you? You're not leading us down a trap-filled corridor into a tomb. I'm not, yes. (laughs) You know, maybe that's another podcast. But for this one, (laughs) we're reviewing a book. But you do make it seem in your piece that this world of ancient manuscripts is full of ideas and intrigue and rivalry. Is that fair to say? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And, um, you know, gossip, I think. Yeah. I mean, the book is sort of in contrast to the previous book by Christopher de Hamel, who is like the world leading expert pretty much on medieval manuscripts. I think there's a statistic that he's supposed to have handled more medieval manuscripts than anyone else in the world alive full stop gosh because he's an academic and he was an auctioneer as well yeah so he currently works i think at um, corpus christi college library in cambridge which is one of the really big important institutional manuscript collections 
And yeah, he also used to work at Christie's as an auctioneer. So he's done a lot of cataloging, researching, appraising, all that sort of stuff. So if it's manuscripts you're interested in, then he's your man. So what you're saying is he's not super at home with the Waterstones buy one, get one half price type of (laughs) book acquisition. He's at what we might call the more rarefied end. I think it's probably fair to say that. Yes, yes. I mean, yeah, well, manuscripts are obviously unique objects as opposed to printed books, right, which come in like editions and runs. All of the objects that he deals with and that he handles are pretty much one-offs. So, yeah, I think he's definitely at the kind of upper end of the book market, not in the not in the bargain bins. <laughs> <laughs> And so his book is The Posthumous Papers of the Manuscripts Club. Mm -hmm. And this is a club that he's sort of invented, hasn't he? He means people fascinated by or involved in manuscripts. I mean, just to start with, what sort of manuscripts are we talking about? So largely medieval manuscripts, basically. So uh, it has a very long chronological range, this book. So it has 12 subjects, the first of whom is this medieval monk St Anselm, um, who's in charge of producing and exchanging manuscripts and um, various kind of medieval monasteries. And then it ends with uh, Belle de Costa Green, who is a 19th century figure um, who's responsible for acquiring vast quantities of very expensive manuscripts for the library of J.P. Morgan, who was an avid manuscripts collector. But really, the objects that we're dealing with are either medieval manuscripts from the kind of 13th centuries Occasionally, they go much, 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 much older. So there's early biblical fragments and things like that that feature. But really, the remarkable quality about these objects is the way that they kind of time travel. So you'll get like a manuscript that might have been copied out by a medieval monk and then bought by a humanist scholar in, in Renaissance Florence and then found its way to, I don't know, Germany, where it's been, you know, cut down to size to fit the shelf for a 19th century collector or antiquarian, and then found its way into a big institutional collection like the British Library. So they have these amazing journeys, and at each stage of their histories, they're always accruing marks and alterations and signs from the people who owned them, whether that's, you know, annotations or or physical alterations or or rearrangements, each of which adds to their story. So they originate usually in the medieval period or earlier, but really they have histories that are also 19th century histories and Enlightenment histories and, you know, Renaissance histories. You know, we can learn so much about each of these periods from the way in which these objects pass through them. So, And you say when you're talking about the, the physicality of them, you say he's very good about the physicality of them, how they feel and how they sound and all that. Yes. How they smell. Yes, that's yes. the one we want you to oh, tell us goodness. about, really. Yeah, the calf skin <laughs> smells like vegetarians tune out for a second. But <laughs> smells of bacon. Yes. He says when they burn, which is something that unfortunately happens, you know, semi-frequently in manuscripts history in various different candlelit libraries or fireplace warmed libraries. Yeah, because the vellum pages are made of calfskin, they kind of smell like frying bacon when they burn. That's just one aspect of the kind of physical materiality of these books that he's so good at getting across. 
you know, he talks about how the pages kind of cockle and warp and weft when they're moist and all this kind of stuff. He likes talking about the stature and size of the books as he kind of holds them in his hands. Well, the weight. Tell us a bit about the weight, because that was a kind of staggering detail. Yes. Yeah. So in one instance, he actually takes his kitchen scales with him to the archive because he wants to weigh each volume of this big five-volume uh, 15th century edition of Cicero. He tells us that the first volume weighs, I think it's like six or seven kilograms, the other's about four or five kilograms. And then he says quite matter-of-factly, like, if you put all of these volumes together, then they would therefore weigh about the same as a, a boy of seven or eight. <laughs> it's like... Mm, that's how you weigh things. Yeah, yeah that first exactly. one probably weighs about the same as my dog. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, there you go. That's another unit of measurement that we can that's use. A, yep. yeah. <laughs> Lucy, don't, don't talk about dogs. There's a terrible dog detail in this piece. Is there? Oh, yes, there is. Actually, I was going to ask you about that as well. I was going to talk about the, well, actually, we're moving from the objects to the people. Yeah. There are 12 portraits of the people obsessed by these manuscripts, mostly but not all men, as you point out. You've got a lovely line where you say very gently, these are, it is fair to say, difficult characters. <laughs> they're at best, eccentric and awkward and obsessive. Listen, they're not well behaved, are they? And the dog thing, it's not too, it's not too awful, dog lovers, don't worry. What kind of behaviour do they display? Well, I think there's something that I definitely don't have. And I don't know if people just get it genetically or where it comes from. But there's a certain quality, which is the collector's impulse. You know, people just become obsessed with accruing stuff. And often early on in their biographies, early on in, in, their, in their life histories, a lot of these characters have childhoods where they're obsessed with collecting, I don't know, like shells or, or fossils or whatever. Oh, so they're already like that. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Gotcha, yeah. And then as they get older, they kind of have this uh, yeah, growing um, or maturing collector's impulse and they turn to medieval manuscripts. But that kind of obsessiveness and completism that you get with kids with, I don't know, their like football trading cards or whatever, that really survives into adulthood for a lot You're of You're telling people. me, James, I live with a collector. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. Oh, yes. Not of books, of vinyl. Uh, and yeah. well, I mean, sometimes I think, I mean, I would never say it's the records or me, but occasionally <laughs> I think we might be discovered, you know, underneath mm. a pile of them. Yeah, like <laughs> Leonard Bast, but records. Precisely. Yeah. And I, I must say, it is that completism and it's the hunting down of the Holy Grail and yes. all this sort exactly, of thing. Is. Exactly. And also the Johnny come lateliness. I mean, the I have to say, the scorn reserved for people who are, as it were, Johnny come lately's to the vinyl collecting game would wither calfskin, <laughs> actually, I must say, in this house. Yeah, well, definitely the idea of a manuscripts club of connoisseurs and aficionados does imply people who are not members of the club, who maybe just like don't get it, of which I you know, don't get me wrong, I'm an early modernist. I spend a lot of time in the rare books uh, room at the British Library, but I don't think I am quite as obsessive or monomaniacal as some of the people in this book. And it is, you know, like we were saying before, a certain personality type, you know, that has this very blinkered vision of needing to acquire the next thing that will just like 
complete your collection. Um, and that leads to these very intense like interpersonal rivalries as well. So one of the most entertaining chapters in the book is about Frederick Madden, who was uh, the keeper of manuscripts at what was then the British Museum Library in the 19th century. And he has this lifelong rivalry with Anthony Panizzi, whose name you might be familiar with from the Panizzi lectures, which now happen at the British Library. And he was the British Museum's keeper of printed books and, and was later on the kind of a head librarian of the British Museum Library. And they had, for these very kind of, you know, august, austere Victorian figures, they had this extraordinarily childish feud where they were kind of being very territorial about you know, manuscript acquisition versus printed books acquisition. And this got to the, it kind of curdled and soured to the extent that Panizzi actually spent many years, and this is all recorded in, you know, correspondence, unsuccessfully campaigning to get Frederick Madden's dog, Fido, banned from the grounds. He didn't succeed, unfortunately, and Fido was actually buried on the grounds. Oh, well, so too bad for Anthony Panizzi. Exactly. It's extraordinary that you would do that. The standout word there for me is years. He spent years campaigning to keep the dog out, did he? Yes. Yeah, exactly. Wow. Yeah. Oh, As Fido. I say, you know, these are very obsessive characters. And I think that's what translates into their, you know, success and their kind of doggedness and their perseverance in collecting. But I think also it's what makes them have such entertaining personal lives, you know, because they're not ordinary people, you know, they're incredibly driven you know, incredibly sort of all-consuming addiction, really, for kind of acquisition and collection, which, yeah, makes them so interesting. But as you point out as well, acquisition is a crucial part of it because to be able to acquire that much, you have to have great wealth. This is what you say. This is a key part. This is not normal members of the public who like, you know, as you say, like collecting football cards or even vinyl, Alex. These things are really expensive. Tell us about them becoming Veblen goods. Oh, yes. Yeah. So this is this idea that we have now with like designer clothing and stuff like that, where what normally happens is that when you charge more for something, then the demand for it goes down, right? That's like the law of supply and demand, I guess. But with Veblen goods, the more you charge, the more highly valued the commodity and the higher the demand goes up. And de Hamel makes this really interesting case that this started to happen to manuscripts which were painted, you know, illuminated by the 16th century Belgian illuminator and Simon Benning. So, yeah, I mean, that's just kind of one example of how de Hamel illustrates how these objects become assets, you know, and then after that into the 17th, 18th and 19th century, you know, they become an asset class for wealthy investors, basically. And yeah, I think like because de Hamel sees himself as a member of the Manuscripts Club, you know, he's a enthusiast just as much as all the people that he's writing about. I think he has quite a lot of sympathy for them. I mean, he always has a little bit of a soft spot for them. You know, this book is full of, as I say, you know, rogues, villains, misanthropes, um, people who behave in um, incredibly petty and childish ways in order to get what they want. But he's always got a little crumb of empathy for them and a crumb of kind of fellow feeling. I think where that starts to become the problem is that there's a sort of another book behind this book that this book never quite becomes, which is basically an anthropological study of absolutely unimaginably massive wealth. 
and the power and politics that go with that. Because, yeah, as you correctly identified, if you want to have a medieval manuscript collection of basically any size or significance, you need to have tons and tons of money. And so a lot of the people in this book, consequently, are either extremely rich themselves or they're the sort of, you know, fixers and middlemen for incredibly rich people um, and they're spending incredibly rich people's money on their behalf. And, you know, as I say, de Hamel is not entirely kind of unaware of that dynamic. But I think he does give people who are sometimes a little bit dodgy, perhaps the benefit of the doubt. Can I ask a very sort of naive question here? Mm-hmm. Are any of these obsessive collectors and chasers and fixers at all interested in what's inside the books? I mean, are they interested in what was being conveyed, the contents in any kind of way? Or is it just the books as objects and as rarities? Mm, that's a really good question. And I think it actually does vary. I don't think there's anyone in this book who is just interested in manuscripts as financial assets in the same way that you might be interested in purchasing, I don't know, a bond or something like that. They're always, always, always interested in something about them, but that varies very widely. So sometimes they're interested in them because of their provenance, because they were owned by someone, especially kind of uh, interesting or auspicious in the past. Sometimes they're interested in the aesthetic beauty of them. You know, I was talking about those um, illuminations by Simon Benning. I mean, if you look at photos of them as artworks, they are extraordinary. You know, they're miniatures, but they're incredibly vital and, and true to life. You know, I think De Hamel says something like, you know, you can look at these images and these artworks um, and see the faces of like real Belgian people, you know. So that's one aspect of it. And then I think there's a third category, which is um, for some people, they are assembling like working libraries because they're scholars. So Theodore Mommsen, um, who's this very famous polymath and the kind of archetype of a, of a scatterbrained academic, was drawing up an edited edition of this book, The Getica, which is a sixth century history of the Goths. In order to write this book, he had to get hold of very, very old editions of the book from libraries in Heidelberg, in Cambridge, in Vienna, all of whom were perfectly happy and bizarrely enough, looking back at it now, to lend him these these incredibly valuable books, which he then apparently took home on the train. I mean, it's kind of amazing that that was allowed to happen, you know, especially the provenance of these books, you know, they're so eminent. I wanted to get in your Indiana Jones point. That's why we talk about Indiana Jones, because you say in your piece, at several points in this book, I wanted to cry, Indiana Jones style, that belongs in a museum. So this question, it's it's a really interesting and important question, is that obviously if you're a collector, you're the only one who can see it. Whereas if they're in a library or in a museum, everybody can see it. Tell us your point about that. Indeed. Yeah, I think... um... We now exist in a paradigm where manuscripts are generally finding their way into big public institutional collections like the British Library, you know, where you can go and look at them and anyone with the proper credentials, you know, if you're prepared to take along your, uh, you know, electricity bill to the British Library and your ID and stuff and get your reader's card, you can show up and you can call up a manuscript and you can join in this long line of readers and owners. But for de Hamel, I think he thinks there's something quite magical 
about being invited into this kind of inner sanctum and this uh, socially exclusive world where, you know, you have dinner in the hall of the castle and then you get invited up into the library where these uh, manuscripts are plucked off the shelves and you get to look at them in this kind of, um, you know, sequestered environment that's sort of separate from the real world. You know, I think he thinks that's quite magical. But I think that's also quite a kind of conservative impulse in some ways. You know, for me, I think there's something magical about the, uh, you know, slightly municipal looking reading rooms of public libraries. And I think what makes them magical um, is that, yeah, they're being made available um, for people to come and look at and they have a life. I think there's a very indicative phrase, which he uses a couple of times in this book, where he says that manuscripts in public libraries are in captivity rather than in the wild. And for me, I think it's sort of the other way around. Mm. So I think, um, yeah, there are a few moments when I want to say that, yeah, manuscripts shouldn't be in private hands and that they should be available to look at for everyone. Um, I'm sort of like, yeah, shaking the book by the lapels. <laughs> I think this is beyond the scope of De Hamel's book and your review. But I wonder whether there was any trade, as it were, in sort of more modern manuscripts. Do they start to lose value the more modern they become? Well, I think obviously manuscript production declines because of the arrival of print. Yes, exactly. I suppose what I mean is, you know, writers who write their sort of initial works by hand. So, you know, another way of thinking of what a manuscript is, obviously not the same as a medieval manuscript, but do they have a kind of value? Yes, I think they do. I think it's a slightly different kind of object though because even though medieval manuscripts are functional you know especially in their early histories when they're being used by monks and they are you know really instrumental in forming these kind of intellectual communities they're also very very kind of high status artistic objects right that have huge amounts of meaning invested in the way that they appear the materials that they're made from and so on and I think while there is also a market in, you know, autograph manuscripts by 20th century writers and so on, I think those are slightly different kinds of object because they're usually more functional and they don't have this kind of... They don't have the beauty, I suppose. Yeah, the beauty and, yeah, the kind of aesthetic objecthood um, that I think medieval manuscripts do. And also, like I was saying before, they haven't had time to accrue these extra histories of handling and annotation and rearranging and chopping and changing, which is, I think, what makes medieval manuscripts so exciting is that they kind of function like these time machines that you can see the sweep in them. We were talking a little while ago about Emma Donoghue's new novel, Haven, mm -hmm. it's a medieval Irish island. And one of the tasks on this kind of bit of rock that is absolutely rain-lashed is keeping the manuscripts that are being copied free from the weather and free from destruction. Mm. And the people who are actually doing the copying are frequently you know, illiterate and being, you know, they're learning how to write. And, you know, it, again, they're sort of divorced from what the meaning is, but there is this idea of it, not just as a valuable object, but as a sacred object. Mm, yeah, very much so. Yeah. And I think the idea of protecting them from damage, I mean, often, you know, so often in their early histories, you know, you hear of manuscripts being kind of like, you know, dropped off a bridge and then getting picked up again, you know, manuscripts being 
swept out to sea and then coming back and then you know being battered and passed around and stolen and returned and yeah keeping them safe I think is a pretty major task and yeah I think that kind of thing is part of what makes them again so valuable just these kind of like histories that they have yeah I mean obviously now they are under like slightly more kind of amenable living conditions than they have been in the past I mean you know there's the great 18th century catastrophe of the manuscripts world um, which was the aptly named Ashburnham house fire which destroyed or damaged um, a lot of the really important manuscripts, which were kind of extant at the time, because they were being kept in a library in a house above a big fireplace that was being used to keep people warm. So yeah, there's all sorts of tales of woe like that, but also all sorts of near misses as well, you know, when manuscripts have come down to us, um, you know, despite water, fire, sea. Yeah, so I think all of that does also contribute to what makes these objects so so special. Fascinating. One of the morals of the story is after you've had dinner in the hall of your castle, <laughs> make sure that your library is not directly above your great fireplace. And, that would uh, be good. Yeah. Or underneath right. a leaky roof. <laughs> yeah. yeah, leaky roofs, fireplaces. Something that we can all we can all learn from. I'm so glad in this whole story that Fido prevailed, I must say. That's the yes. bit I... Fido was still allowed to roam the grounds. And in fact, it's still there from what you say, James. As far as I know, yeah. <laughs> I'm afraid we have to, not having our own time machine, we're going to run out. So I'm afraid that we have to say thank you very much, Indiana Jones or James Waddell, <laughs> joining <laughs> us and guiding us through this world. Thank you. Thanks very much. Cheers. Always a pleasure. have time for this week our thanks go to Anna Reid and James Waddell and thank you for listening to this episode of the TLS podcast produced by Charlotte Pardy we'll be back next week but for now from Lucy Dallas and from me goodbye <laughs>